Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local area. Today's show features Father Vince Free, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, and his series entitled The Mystery of Vatican II, recorded at St. Raphael Center in March 2008. And now, Father Vince Free. And the biggest problem in the world today can be found in what is known as the Human Manifesto. I don't know if you know that, but this is, uh, we've got a copy here, maybe I'll read a couple of, we have time, we can read a couple of lines from this. This, is, uh, this was uh, produced in, uh, I think in St. Louis, and in the mid-30s. And here's the way it starts. The time has come for widespread recognition of the radical changes in religious beliefs throughout the modern world. The time has passed for mere revision of traditional attitudes. Science and economic change have disrupted the old beliefs. Religions the world over are under the necessity of coming to terms with the new conditions created by a vastly increased knowledge and experience. In every field of human activity, the vital movement is now in the direction of a candid and explicit humanism. In order that a religious humanism may be better understood, we, the undersigned, desire to make certain affirmations which we believe the facts of our contemporary life demonstrate. There is a great danger. That's kind of the introduction, okay, the foreword to their manifesto. And here's the first paragraph. There is a great danger of a final, and we believe fatal, identification of the word religion with doctrines and methods which have lost their significance and which are powerless to solve the problem of human living in the 20th century. In other words, religion has failed. Religions have always been means for realizing the highest values of life. Their end has been accomplished through the interpretation of the total environing situation, the theology or worldview, the sense of values resulting therefrom, the goal or ideal, and the technique, the cult, established for realizing the satisfactory life. A change in any of these factors results in alteration of the outward forms of religion. This fact explains the changefulness of religions throughout, throughout the centuries. But through all changes, religion itself remains constant in its quest for abiding values, an inseparable feature of human life. Today, man's larger understanding of the universe, his scientific achievements, and his deeper appreciation of brotherhood have created a situation which requires a new statement of the means and purposes of religion. Such a vital, fearless, and frank religion, capable of furnishing adequate social goals and personal satisfactions, may appear to many people as a complete break with the past. While this age does owe a vast debt to traditional religions, it is nonetheless obvious that any religion that can hope to be a synthesizing and dynamic force for today must be shaped for the needs of this age. To it is a responsibility to establish such a religion is a major necessity of the present. They want to establish secular religion. It is a responsibility which rests upon this generation. We therefore affirm the following. Here's the human manifesto, humanist manifesto. Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. That's the first tenet. Secondly, humanism believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as a result of a continuous process. That's what we call unmitigated evolution. Third, 
holding an organic view of life, humanists find that traditional dualism of mind and body must be rejected. In other words, you don't have a soul. (laughs) Four, humanism recognized that man's religious culture and civilization, as clearly depicted by anthropology and history, are the product of a gradual development due to his interaction with his natural environment and with his social heritage. The individual born into a particular culture is largely molded to that culture. There is no such thing as revelation. Fifth, humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human values. Obviously, humanism does not deny the possibility of realities as yet undiscovered, but, but it does insist that the way to determine the existence and value of any and all realities is by means of intelligent inquiry and by the assessment of their relation to human needs. Religion must formulate its hopes and plans in the light of the scientific spirit and method. Does it sound good? Six, we are convinced that the time has passed for theism, deism, modernism, and several varieties of new thought. Seventh, religion consists of those actions, purposes, and experiences which are humanly significant. Nothing human is alien to the religious. It includes labor, art, science, philosophy, love, friendship, recreation, all that is in its degree expressive of intelligently satisfying human living. The distinction between the sacred and secular can no longer be maintained. This is a... Can we go on? I I can finish this, I suppose. Okay, so we'll, we'll do this, and I'm going to have comments and questions afterwards. So this, this is the core. This is what we're facing today. This is what we have to, re- the need we have to meet. Our spirituality has to just put this right into the trash bin of history. That's what it's got to do. So anyhow, this, they, they go on to say this. Religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seeks its development and ful- fulfillment in the here and now. This is the explanation of the humanist's social passion. There is no afterlife. It's all here. Ninth, in place of the old attitudes involved in worship and prayer, the humanist finds his religious emotions expressed in a heightened sense of personal life and in a cooperative effort to promote social well-being. (laughs) Tenth, it follows that there will be no uniquely religious emotions and attitudes of the kind hitherto associated with belief in the supernatural. Eleventh, man will learn to face the crises of life in terms of his knowledge and and of of their naturalness and probability. Reasonable and manly attributes will be fostered by education and supported by custom. Oh, happy thought. (laughs) We assume that humanism will take the path of social and mental hygiene and discourage sentimental and unreal hopes and wishful thinking. Twelfth, Believing that religion must work increasingly for joy and living, religious humanists aim to foster the creative in man and to encourage achievements that add to the satisfactions of life. Thirteenth, religious humanism maintains that all associations and institutions exist for the fulfillment of human life. The intelligent evaluation, transformation, control, and direction of such associations and institutions with a view to the enhancement of human life is the purpose and program of humanism. Certainly religious institutions, their ritualistic forms, ecclesiastical methods, and communal activities must be reconstituted 
as rapidly as experience allows in order to function effectively in the modern world. <laughs> the humanists are firmly convinced that existing acquisitive and profit motive society has shown itself to be inadequate and that a radical change in methods, controls, and motives must be instituted. A socialized and cooperative economic order, this is where they're bringing in socialism, must be established to the end that the equitable distribution of the means of life be possible. The goal of humanism is a free and universal society in which people voluntarily and intelligently cooperate for the common good. Humanists demand a shared life in a shared world. Fifteenth and last, we assert that humanism will, A, affirm life rather than deny it. Oh, yeah. Seek to elicit the possibilities of life, not flee from it, and see, endeavor to establish the conditions of a satisfactory life for all, not merely for the few. By this positive mor morale and intention, humanism will be guided, and from this perspective and alignment, the techniques and efforts of humanism will flow. So stand the theses of religious humanism. Though we consider the religious forms and ideas of our fathers no longer adequate, the quest for the good life is still the central task for mankind. Man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams, that he has within himself the power for its achievement. He must set intelligence and will to the task. Well, you see, I, I, that's, that, uh, that concludes my comments. You know, we, we can go into question and answer and discussion now. But you see, what this does is it takes a lot of religious notions and, and it just secularizes the whole thing. And, and as you, you know, as I read it, I, I, the, the 20th century, where this, you know, this was supposed to be the answer, the bloodiest, the bloodiest in the history of humanity. By modest estimates, over 120 million people died a violent death, either by starvation or violence in the 20th century. 120. I, that's the, the low estimate. The high estimate is 140 million. And uh, that's what happens when you don't have God in your life. You know, when the blood of your brother no longer cries to heaven for vengeance, watch out. That's, that's really what um, Vatican II looked at this whole thing and said, hey, we have to start getting our religion to address all of these afflictions and all these problems. These guys are talking about what creates a problem, not any hope for a solution. You know, and, and, and they just multiply and extend or perpetuate that error. Unfortunately, this was not, well, you know, <clears throat> I don't know, you ever hear that before, the Human Manifesto? And it, it, you know, John Dewey, the so-called father of education in the United States, helped frame that Human Manifesto, Humanist Manifesto. And we regard him as the father of American education. I, I have other, all kinds of quotes, like the guy who was a big shot in, uh, in, uh, the UN in education, you know, where he says, we needn't worry about religion because most of these kids get about an hour of religion at best at, in Sunday school, and we have the child in school all week. <laughs> and he said this in public record. This isn't a public record. So that's why I think we have to, you know, when we look at our, uh, unfortunately, uh, I, I would, you could have to, you could spend perhaps an hour on trying to show how, when Vatican II came along, and this whole idea of, you know, where like people don't want to use the word devotion anymore. They want to use this word spirituality because devotions were uh, 
they were, they were sort of brought to personal interest rather than to have a John Paul II in his, uh, it's the, um, his letter that he wrote, I forget the title of it, but it's about America, the Synod in America. He really endorsed the importance of, of, of uh, popular devotion. But he said there are three things about it. It could not be self-serving. It had to take in all and not just be focused on one little aspect of the faith. And it had to make you aware that we are sinners, that we're not just all special people, you know, that don't need repentance and conversion and such, and that it be that it lead us to charity. If it does not lead us to charity or charitable works and such, that devotion is to be uh, ranked with what St. Teresa, <laughs> Teresa of Avila said, oh God, deliver us from foolish devotions. <laughs> she said that, I mean, that's on page 93 in the book I, I have. <laughs> but it's, it's really quite true. So when we're talking about the spirituality of Vatican II, I think you can say, all of this is what the Human Manifesto is saying in many ways, that we are searching for meaning and we have to find, you know, the, that the churches have failed. They're not making this up. Like uh, Father Alfred Delp, I quoted him, I think, in my first talk, where he said, in spite of all right reason and orthodox belief, the churches are coming to a dead end. Dead end. They're irrelevant. And what's missing? Love. If you don't have love, you're not going to convey, convert the world. You, know, you, you can't convert anybody by right reason, orthodox belief, only by showing that you have experienced God's love and this has given meaning and purpose to your life. We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. From an interminable Good Friday, Easter Sunday finally came. That was the experience of hundreds of refugees from Torrent in the Sudan when they finally were able to return home. Their bishop watched them come back by bus, truck, and on foot. Immediately, he celebrated Mass for them. He reminded them through the Eucharist of the presence of God always in their broken hearts. In our own lives, we too must pass through times of suffering. But we realize there is hope, always looking beyond our Good Friday to the Lord's resurrection. It's a lesson from the missions. Brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at onefamilyinmission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this one family in mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio presents. St. Thomas Aquinas, that when he was on his deathbed, he uh, was holding a crucifix. And uh, he sort of looked at that crucifix in very, you know, rapt attention and said, I learned more from this than I did from everything else in my life. Now, he wrote books, I mean, like, I guess you could stack them that high. But what he doesn't tell us is that if he hadn't learned all that other stuff, he wouldn't have learned that much from the crucifix. It's the thing that you, you know, when you really understand life, coming to an understanding of what it means to be human, then you can fully understand what Jesus was all about. The same thing is true of culture. 
If we understand culture, then we can understand spirituality because they both deal, both spirituality and culture, deal with the same essential components, attributes, elements that comprise our identity and purpose. Now, what we're going to do tonight is reflect on culture in terms of the Second Vatican Council. Pope John Paul II described the Second Vatican Council as the Holy Spirit's greatest gift to the Church at the end of the second millennium. If this is true, our failure to value and implement the teachings of Vatican II amounts to a failure to be open to the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the question we have to ask is, why did this happen? As I mentioned before, without a doubt, there were more than a few self-styled experts who interpreted the spirit and aims of the council to suit their own agendas. But that hardly explains why a great majority of the clergy, religious, and laity failed to catch on especially in light of the clarity with which Pope John XXIII and Pope Paul VI spoke about the need and purpose of the Council. Judging from my own experience, I think the answer can be found in two words, evangelization and culture. We were not familiar with these words. In fact, we had hardly begun to share a common understanding of what they mean, let alone see how each relates to the other, and how these two words are at the heart of Vatican II. I often referred previously to the concepts of identity, purpose, and relevance. And I did so in terms of spirituality and culture, both of which pertain to evangelization. If we see how these two notions fit together in the pursuit of of holiness, pardon me, and in fulfilling the mission of the church. In other words, how does spirituality and culture figure in the pursuit of holiness and evangelization. Then we will be well on our way towards realizing the promise held out to the world by the Second Vatican Council. Now, what I'd like to do is take a practical example of how vision, values, principles, and governance all work together to shape a given culture and how a culture then goes about shaping a people. We can do this by asking a very simple question. What made America great? What made America great? What was it that enabled our nation to achieve such outstanding progress in things like the standard of living, literacy, freedom from totalitarian state control, technological development, good health services, a ready supply of drinking water, and a host of other benefits that are beyond the reach of more than a billion people in the third world? All kinds of people don't have what we have. Now, if we, in answering this question, if you went to see an historian, he would give a lot of credit to our founding fathers. They were great patriots. They had the vision and courage to break with the old world. And they were prepared to risk their lives and their fortunes by venturing into uncharted territory to forge their own destiny. If you're talking to an economist, That person would point to the combination of abundant natural resources along with a free enterprise system that favored initiative and productivity. How about politicians? What made America great? Well, a politician would likely insist it was democracy and participatory governance. That's what made the difference because it provided opportunity 
and it forced people into attitudes that favored self-reliance as well as mutual trust. Now, people with strong religious beliefs might make a good case for the evangelical churches, as evidenced in a Protestant work ethic, rugged individualism, and basic biblical morality, which had a lot to do with the founding and the early success of the colonies, as well as the overall growth of America right up to the Civil War. So what is the answer to what made America great? Well, if you were to ask Alexander Solzhenitsyn or Pope John Paul II, their full and convincing answer would be culture. To begin with, Solzhenitsyn draws a sharp line between the French and the American experience of the Age of Enlightenment. Whereas the revolution in France was aimed at the overthrow of monarchy, they wanted to get rid of the kings, the American Revolution was aimed at extending the divine right of kings to everyone. This resolve to extend the divine right of kings to everyone became the foundation of our American culture, and that culture is what made America great. In the pursuit of freedom, there was no denial, no resentment toward the Creator. The Constitution clearly recognized that basic human rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness came from the Creator as the birthright of each and every human being. The Constitution guaranteed the protection of these rights. It, not, it did not pretend to bring them into existence. If you read the French and Mexican constitutions, you will find that they read in such a way that they establish rights for citizens, not as a prerogative based on the bedrock of natural law, but by reason of a social contract. So the founding act of government, in that case, puts government in charge of the people rather than at their service under God-given rights. Like Solzhenitsyn, Pope John Paul II recognized that culture interprets the past, qualifies the present, and drives the future of humanity. Culture does. Although Pope John Paul II lived under Nazi occupation and communist domination, his identity was rooted in Polish culture. And he could see up close how the entire range of human activity, politics, religion, economics, social structures, philosophy, education, art, science, law, recreation, entertainment, the theater, and so on, all took place in the context of culture and gave shape to it. In short, because of its comprehensive and dominant influence on human affairs, culture, for better or worse, in the present and towards the future, determines the fortunes of humanity. Now, Pope John Paul II made a key comment on the construction of a culture, how culture comes to be. He points out that the prevailing idea or definition of the human person in large measure, determines the culture within which it's found. What that concept or image will be depends chiefly on how God figures in the definition of a human person. If you have a godless understanding of the individual, you will have a godless culture. In fact, the word culture itself comes from the Latin word cultus, which means worship. And that's more than a subtle clue that religion can, and in our case once did, have a decisive influence on culture. According to Solzhenitsyn, the prevailing Western view of the world was born during the Renaissance. It became political during the Age of Reason, and it has now morphed into what we call rationalistic humanism, which stands for absolute human autonomy 
assisting apart from any higher power, a view declared and enforced by the establishment as the de facto human condition in the world today. This dismissal of God, Solzhenitsyn notes, is an axiomatic self-deification of the human person. In other words, if there is no God, then I am God. There is no longer a heaven to which the blood of one's brother can cry out for vengeance. Furthermore, since whatever a person chooses to do carries no moral sanction, people can do what they please. Under this supposition, there is no such thing as moral evil and no higher purpose other than self-gratification in the here and now. That's the kind of culture that exists once you eliminate a relationship to God. Now, just from these few examples, we can see that culture is an ongoing process that authorizes human behavior by defining and elaborating basic structures and conventions for society, creating traditions, customs, institutions that enable a people to live together in relative harmony, to meet common needs and to achieve common goals, while at the same time affording individuals and social units the space and relative freedom needed for them to realize individual benefits and goals. Now, what do we mean by basic structures of society or, you know, the basis of culture? We mean those things that have to do with governance and the rule of law, especially in regard to essential matters such as ownership, marriage, religion, trial and punishment, inheritance, ethics, compensation for work, and so forth. These basic concerns have a direct bearing on how people can achieve some degree of meaning and purpose in their lives those social and spiritual goods without which life is less than human. Other aspects of culture pertain to the quality of life issues, accomplishments and practices that can be cultivated in a civilized society, for example, music, art, architecture, cuisine, language, dress, higher education, recreation. This uh, description of culture, as it is, uh, you know, the basis, the structure for society, It it agrees with the teachings of Pope Paul VI in his apostolic exhortation on evangelization in the modern world. He defines culture indirectly by describing evangelization as what the church does when it, quote, seeks to convert solely through the divine power of the message she proclaims both the personal and collective consciences of people, the activities in which they engage and the lives and concrete milieu which are theirs. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.